0: The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church 2 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC2. And this is Secret Church 2, Episode 6. Second Peter, Um, we're going to have to go through this stuff good because we got the second half really where it all comes together and I don't want us to miss out on that. So Peter's most likely awaiting execution as he writes the letter of 2 Peter. Somewhat like 2 Timothy, Peter is, is kind of facing the brink of it all. Um, primary theme in this book, growth in grace and in knowledge. Knowledge is really emphasized over and over again in the insurance we have in Christ through our knowledge of Christ. And so we see that numerous times. It's interesting to compare the themes of First and 2 Peter. Second Peter, Peter's writing from a persecuted standpoint, but it's not as much about the suffering and persecution as First Peter is. First Peter, he talks about how Satan can come as a lion to devour the church with persecution. What's interesting though is when you get to Second Peter, you see him talking about how Satan can come as a serpent to deceive the church with false doctrine that he will, he will take different vantage points to come after the church, is what we're seeing. You see the overall structure there. Um, I think it's interesting to compare this book with Second Timothy to see two men who are facing martyrdom. Um, note the explanation especially of the Bible's inspiration in Second Peter, end of Second Peter chapter 1, the Bible's inspiration is really described how all the Old Testament prophets were pointing to Christ. That's the book of Second Peter. Then you get into three letters here from John. First, second, and third John. Uh, First John, um, great book. Just a little tip here. If you're ever in a Greek class that is devoted to First John, it's extremely helpful to memorize the New American Standard portions of John because that'll help you out a lot on your Greek test. When you're supposed to be translating this particular verse, it's really helpful to have a little bit of the English uh, hidden in your mind and heart. So anyway... Not that I know that from experience, but John states five purposes we might have fellowship that 's talking about communion with Christ, that we might have joy that we might not sin, that we might overcome error. He is addressing Gnosticism much like we saw in Colossians, and we might have assurance talks in first John chapter five kind of a you see a test of obedience, a test of love, a test of truth. How do we know because john 's addressing people who had claimed to come to faith but were had completely turned their back on that, completely. And John is talking about how they never really were of us. And you could see that by those kind of different tests, so to speak. The primary themes in 1 John are that God is light, and light is compared with darkness all throughout this book. That God is love, love is compared with hatred all, all throughout this book. And then God is life, or God is truth. Sorry, not life there. God is truth, which is contrasted with, with error. Key verses, you see, you see them listed there. I want you to see when you read this book, I encourage you to see how John uses simple words throughout that are packed with meaning, simple foundational words over and over again, love, know or knowledge, sin, abide, remain, um, the world, just like we saw in the Gospel of John and life and and it 's also helpful many times when we when we think of developing an argument so to speak or building a case for something we we kind of build sequential steps and this builds on this and this builds on this john I, I put there to see it more in terms of a musical arrangement than a well-ordered argument it's really a circular pattern he comes back to these themes that you've seen that we've just talked about over and over and over again and so he'll be talking about one thing and then he'll go back to the other and then then to another and then he'll come back to the thing he'd been talking about before it's really kind of a verse chorus verse chorus kind of picture we've got there that's First John. Then Second John, 2nd, 3rd John, obviously much smaller, written to either one local church or an esteemed woman in a local church, because it's mentioned, it's written to her, but this is one of those general, kind of vague moments in, in some of these letters. We're not sure exactly who he's writing to. Basically, the, the, what's being addressed in this book is what happens when somebody causes problems in one church and they end up leaving? Where do they go? They go to another church to cause problems, and they go to another church, and they go to another church. And basically what John is doing is there's been some false teachers that have risen up and have been addressed in one church, they left to go on another another church, and another church, and another church, and false teachers are basically trying to deceive different churches. And so that's why he writes this book, to guard the doctrine of the incarnation, because much of what they were teaching was about the divinity and humanity of Christ, and then to avoid false teachers. Avoid false teachers. He's encouraging them to avoid false teachers. Tells them to practice the truth, and then practice the truth and protect the truth. And in this short book, the word commandment is mentioned fourteen different times. Commandment mentioned fourteen different times, and you've got truth, some of these other important words. But he's obviously he's commanding them to hold fast to the truth of Christ and to guard it. Then you've got 3 John. This is the shortest book in the Bible. Third John is the shortest book in the Bible, and basically there are four different characters involved in this short book. One is John. He's the one who wrote it. Gaius, he's the one who received it. Diatreves, who caused it. he He was the one who made the letter necessary. And Demetrius, who carried it. Basically, what had happened was, in that day, itinerant missionaries would travel around from church to church, and it was expected for... The churches and different places to offer them hospitality, just as Johnny is visiting here and the folks from Open Doors, we, we want to offer hospitality. Well, that was kind of the picture there. Well, it was, it was a part of that whole picture that a missionary who traveled around would have letters, so to speak, that would verify who they were and they represent this church. It was their way of making sure that they were going to guard against false teachers. Well, you had this guy, Diatreves, who who basically was was causing a mess. He wanted to be boss in the church and he was usurping John's authority and the authority of other church leaders and he was not showing the kind of hospitality that that is called for there. And so the primary theme is hospitality in the church. That's that's really what third John is mainly about. The overall structure we see in those three people, Gaius is a prosperous Christian, Diotrephes a proud Christian, proud Christian, then Demetrius, a pleasant Christian. That's kind of an overview of the structure. Last two books. You've got Jude, another very small book, written by Jude or Judas, the brother of Jesus. And the primary theme, and this is a word that you'll see highlighted, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Fight for, guard the faith. The picture in Jude is soldiers who are holding the fort at any cost, doing whatever's necessary to guard and contend for the faith. You see the condemnation of false teachers based on seven Old Testament examples. So in this short book, you've got a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. And the picture is he's challenging them to guard the faith, but he's doing it by emphasizing the power of Christ to keep his church to the end. Jude emphasizes the power of Christ to keep his church to the end. So he's saying, guard the church, guard your faith, guard the gospel that's been entrusted to you because you have a Savior who is guarding your salvation. He guards you, so let's let's guard the gospel he's entrusted to us. That's the picture that we have in the book of Jude. Finally, Revelation. What, what is this book all about? What genre is this book? How do you even begin to describe or classify Revelation? Well, basically, in the very beginning of this book, we see it referred to as three different types of literature. First, it's referred to as apocalyptic literature, looking toward the future. Then you see second, prophet, or using all kinds of images in that. Second is prophecy. It's a word about things to come. And then it's a letter. It's an epistle. So basically, the conclusion we come to is this book has no parallel, and it doesn't fit into any other groups. This is a unique in and of itself. Revelation is a very unique book. Now, this is not in your notes, and it's just going to be side information. We're not going to camp out here long. But throughout church history, there have been different approaches people have taken to how to interpret Revelation. How do you understand this book? And basically four main approaches, and I'm just going to run through them real quick. They're not in your notes, but the first, book, first approach to Revelation is it's called a preterist uh, uh, approach to it, which basically means we're looking at Revelation as something that was only intended for those first Christians in the first century, and the only application is to what was going on in their lives at that time. It's not about future things. It's about what was going on right there, and that's where it stops. That's where its meaning stops. Second is a historical approach to the book of Revelation, which basically Says that all of church history is fulfilling the things we see in the book of Revelation. And so there have been attempts in church history to details that have come along the way over the last 2,000 years to. To tie those back to this verse or that verse in Revelation, a historical approach. Third is symbolic. There's some people who believe that Revelation is just symbolic of the battle between Christ and Satan, good and evil. And so we, just, we should just interpret it as simply that, symbol, a symbolism. And then fourth is the futurist interpretation, which basically says that this is prophecy. This is something that's looking to, toward actual events that are going to happen one day. Basically, the way I would encourage you to look at the book of Revelation is through two lenses. First lens, I would encourage you to look at the book of Revelation through the lens of what it meant to these first century Christians. Was there application to them? Yes. We're going to see that in just a second. There was huge application to where they were and the gospel's effect on where they were at that time. But then it makes pretty clear at the very beginning of this book that it is about prophecy. And so not only look at what it meant for them then, but second, look at what this book is telling us about all time as a whole. There's all kinds of instances in Scripture where even in the Old Testament we see a prophecy of something that's going to happen. And it's fulfilled at one point in part, but it's fully fulfilled in Christ. And that's kind of the picture we're seeing here. So look at it through two lenses. Through what this meant for those people at that time, but also what it means for all people of all time. So with those two lenses, let's dive into this. It's written, the book is written by John when he was exiled on Patmos. After Nero, an emperor named Domitian came along. Domitian was a cold-blooded murderer and was, was wreaking havoc on the church. Nero had been horrible. Domitian was horrible as far as persecuting the church. And as a result, John is on the Isle of Patmos at this point, and he's in his 90s. He's probably very old at this point, and, and writing this as he's in exile. Not, not much hope for anything else to happen in John's life. And that's when he's writing this book to Christians who are facing persecution back on the mainland in the first century. And the whole book is about the gospel and the future of God's kingdom. It's about the gospel and the future of God's kingdom. The primary theme is the revelation of Jesus Christ. From chapter 1, it is clear. This book is about the supremacy of Jesus Christ That is his pri- and how he is revealed in all of history, the totality of history. So, as you study it, As you study, here's some things. This this part's a little longer, the practical advice for study, than some others. But I want to encourage you in a few ways. First of all, to look for the Old Testament throughout Revelation. This is something, when we we get so caught up in thinking Revelation is about the future, and we start getting into this left-behind mode, that we leave the real meaning of revelation behind because there's Old Testament that's looking back as well throughout this thing. Out of 404 verses, there are 278 references to the Old Testament. 278 verses out of 404 of them that contain references to the Old Testament. These are the books that it's predominant from, from Psalms, Daniel, Zechariah, Genesis, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel. It's really neat to see how Genesis and Revelation serve as bookends of the Bible. They're bookends of the Bible. I've listed some things there, we won't we won't look at those tonight, but it's it's an incredible picture to see how this is no accident that Genesis said what it said and Revelation says what it says. It all comes together. We really see the unity of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Some help in understanding this apocalyptic imagery. This this beast, these horns, what's going on in this book? Well, a few things. First of all, remember that imagery, that the imagery is fantasy. Now, by that I don't mean it's not truth. But I do mean that it's images that do represent things. It's, it's, it's fantasy-type images that we need to, if we get so embroiled in, well, what does this part of this, this, this beast or this part of this dragon mean? And we start getting so focused on these little minute things that maybe we're not at the point of why it's depicted this way. So don't get too caught up in that. John interprets the most important images. The most important images, we need to know exactly what they are. We're not left in jeopardy on what they are. He makes it clear. Pay attention to the fixed images throughout the book. There's certain images that represent judgment or certain images that represent blessing that we really can focus on and pay attention to. The things that repeat and recur are things we need to camp out on. And then to see the visions as a whole, not always pressing every detail. See the overall picture of what's going on here because if you get, get caught up in trying to interpret this, 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 and this and all this little picture right here, you'll miss the, you'll miss the forest for the trees. Finally, see the majesty of God in Christ all over Revelation. Domitian had claimed that he was Lord and God and he needed to be addressed as Lord and God. And so over and over again in this book, John says, you're not Lord and you're not God. And he makes it clear through the picture of Christ. The throne is mentioned 44 times, king, kingdom, rule about 37 times, and power and authority about 40 times. The sovereignty of God is all over that book. Okay. That leads us to part two. We've got an overview of the books of the Bible, Now of the books of the New Testament. Now I want us to see how they come together, how they come together. Now this is where we're going to briefly tie with, if you were here at Old Testament Secret Church, where we, where we left off there and how that catapults us into the New Testament. You've got in your notes there, why did God give us the New Testament? Now, we're thinking about that theological dimension. We've thought through some of the historical literary picture, theological dimension. Why did God give us the Old Testament? Well, main reason, overarching reason, this this is based on notes from Secret Church that we saw in the Old Testament last November. To reveal how God redeems his people for his kingdom. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. It's showing how God is taking the initiative to bring his people back to himself. He's redeeming his people for his kingdom. Now, God's kingdom we described as three-faceted. First of all, God's kingdom involves people who are ruled by the king, the people that he rules and reigns over, people that are ruled by the king. Second, a place where the king has dominion. So you've got people... In a place where the king has dominion. And then the kingdom involves, third, a purpose for the king and his kingdom. So what we saw in the Old Testament was God bringing his people to his place for his purpose. And we saw that in different times. We saw at the very beginning of creation. We saw after the fall of creation and what God did with the patriarchs, what God did with, with the judges and the prophets, what God did through his kings, what God did to the united monarchy and the divided monarchy in the Old Testament and what God did through basically anarchy after that. It was, it was over and over again we saw this theme of God bringing his people to his place for his purpose. Now that's the Old Testament picture. And everything, when you get to the end, points to the day when God will redeem his people for his kingdom and establish his reign over all creation. That's what the Old Testament is pointing toward. But the Old Testament is an incomplete story. The Old Testament is incomplete. We are left hanging at the end of Malachi. We want something else, but it's not there. And so you have this period of four or 500 years where you don't hear anything. And then you get the New Testament. Why did God give us the New Testament? To finish what the Old Testament started. The New Testament finishes what the Old Testament started. Here's the beauty of the New Testament. God redeems his people for his kingdom in Christ. The whole plan of the kingdom revolves around Christ. And what we see in the New Testament, you think about people, place, and purpose, God's kingdom. Jesus perfectly represents the people of God, He perfectly represents the people of God. We're going to see this unfold. Jesus is the perfect place where the glory of God dwells. And Jesus perfectly fulfills the ultimate purpose of God. Everything comes to a head in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the king at the center of Scripture. Everything points to Him. Old Testament points forward to Him. New Testament gives us a picture of him, and the church points back to him. Everything centers on Christ. Everything in Scripture must be interpreted through Christ and the gospel of Christ. Everything centers on the king revealed in the New Testament. The king at the center of Scripture. The beauty of this book, or the new, all these books, is the fading shadow of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament has now been illuminated by the glorious reality of Christ in the New Testament. And it is a glorious reality. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.